Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. This week we try and find out why fans aren't flocking to the Wellington Sevens anymore. The Silver Ferns prepare for their first internationals of the year. One of the most influential and longest standing bosses in the sporting world has been stood down. Usain Bolt has one of his Olympic gold medals taken off him. A top yachty calls it quits. And the New Zealand blind cricket team prepares to take on the world. The Wellington Sevens is this weekend and ticket sales have been slow continuing the trend of the last few years. So has the party been pooped? Is the iconic event in its death throes? Or is there life in the old girl yet? Rugby reporter Joe Porter has more. Canvassing opinion, it became clear the punters at least think the Wellington Sevens aren't what they once were. I was just a big party. Everyone, everyone was into it. Everyone was there for the same reason, just to enjoy themselves. Dean is a Wellingtonian and long-time Sevens supporter who hasn't missed a tournament in 14 years. He hasn't bought a ticket for this weekend. He says over-officiousness spoilt his thirst for the spectacle. Last year I noticed you, you could only buy one drink at a time. There's two of us, we're both middle-aged adults, trying to buy a drink each for two people. You couldn't do it. You had to buy one at a time, go away and come back and buy another one. That's just difficult. That's, that's ridiculous. Event organisers were essentially forced into a rebrand by the police and liquor licences who were sick of the drunken fallout. The New Zealand Sevens veteran DJ Forbes has played at the Wellington tournament for a decade and concedes the event's decreasing popularity has diminished the team's home side advantage. It's obviously disappointing but I think uh, I speak on behalf of the boys when you play for your country and you're wearing a black jersey you're pretty proud to represent in front of a a man and his dog so we'll still get out and and, do our best to put on a good good show but yeah it's it's disappointing. The tournament suffered with ticket sales and crowd numbers steadily dwindling though some see a ray of hope for the Sevens. Hospitality New Zealand's Dylan Firth believes the event is slowly finding its feet following the post-party overhaul. Where it is at the moment, um, it's probably tracking upwards from its lowest point. So we are seeing some improvements. I mean, they've made a lot of changes to their model, what they've got, their entertainment, their food and their beverage. Unfortunately, they may have made them a couple of years after they could have been required. And Mr Firth thinks it would be foolish to try and reinstate the all-out party atmosphere that made the event famous. I think that ship sailed in terms of what that that style of event was. It's like any business, you know, sometimes you need to reinvent yourself and and move forward. You know, a lot of good restaurants, a a lot of good bars, they'll often do a renovation every five, ten years and have to reinvent themselves to meet the new demand for the market. Wellington Tourism's Warwick Dent agrees and says they're happy with the current marketing approach, though he concedes the economic benefits of hosting the event have decreased dramatically. If you go back 10 years, it was bringing in a lot of visitors into the city and they were here for, for two or three days. The number of visitors has, has decreased. It has had an impact with the, with the decreasing numbers, but as I said, there's other benefits that we enjoy as far as broadcast exposure and other benefits around that. 
Mr Dent says they want the tournament to stay in the capital beyond the current contract, which ends in 2019, though he wouldn't say whether they'd be willing to pump more money into the event to keep it. Joe Porter with that report, and you're listening to Extra Time. The Silver Ferns are out to prove they have what it takes to win Netball's quad series when they take on Australia in Durban on Sunday morning. The New Zealanders lost last year's series to Australia when the two countries hosted England and South Africa. Now it's South Africa and England's turn to play host to the two biggest netball nations. There are two new names in the Silver Ferns squad and Sam Sinclair and Kelly Jury. But it's also the first time since 2005 that the New Zealanders have taken to the court without their veteran mid-quarter Laura Langman, who's been excluded from selection this year due to her involvement in the Australian Domestic League. The Ferns captain Katrina Grant told Denise Garland that despite having a few new faces, they're full of confidence and ready to turn last year's result around. Sam especially has been in and around that environment for a couple of years now. She comes in and trains with us and, and works really hard and she knows the level of expectation on her. Kelly could be a little bit different, but in December camp she thrived being in the environment. And I think once we're all together, everyone feeds off each other and that environment, the expectations are there, and you just rise to them. And I think we have a great team where, you know, age and inexperience and experience doesn't matter. Everyone just gets on with their job and, and brings everybody in so we're as one. You do just have the one game in Durban, but it is mm. the important one, Australia. You guys were obviously beaten by 12 points twice during the most recent test series against Australia. What will you be working on to, I guess, avoid such a deficit and come away with that win? Yeah, definitely avoiding losing. We don't like to lose. I feel like we've learned a lot from the Constellation Cup. We've brought a few new players in and we want to see what they're like against other opposition. So they could get a chance against Aussie. And it's a, it's a whole new year. Aussie have a new team. We have a new team. We've learned a lot. And we've done a lot of work over the summer break. Do you think you also might have a little bit of a uh, step up coming into this quad series considering you have players like Gina Crampton and Tapia Selby Rickett who hadn't had some games under their belt but now they have? Yeah, those type of players got thrown in the Constellation Cup, got their debuts through last year and were able to get a, a big taste of Australia which obviously are at the moment the top of netball and being able to play against them is going to help anyone either they're experienced or not experienced and it's, and it's going to give them a lot of confidence coming into this quad series you know they know what to expect uh, and I think when you haven't played against the likes of Aussie before you go into a game and, and it's a whole new step up to ANZ champs or, or other test matches and yeah so the unexpected is not there for them and they know how they need to handle it and, and I thought they handled it really well in Constellation Cup and we built through that through our combinations and getting people on court so yeah I'm really confident going into this January tour. And as you mentioned like Australia just like New Zealand, do have a couple of new names in the squad as well. Um, mm. Mid-quarter, Caitlin Nevins and defender Courtney Bruce. How familiar is the team with those players, I guess, uh, having come up against them in the ANZ Championship and, and what they will bring to the court? I suppose that was a positive of the, um, the past ANZ Champs is we got to see any Australian player coming through the ranks and we've all had a chance to play against them as we play against every Aussie team. So we know what, what they can bring to a side. Um, it's just going to see how they gel with the Australian team as they know it's a, it's a step up too. And they're not cat players, so it should be interesting them coming up against us. Hopefully we can put a few nerves into them, just like you know any of our debut players, and it'll be a great test match. Uh, just putting your defence hat on for a, a moment, you've obviously lost a, a few players through injury from the defensive end 
Kayla mm. Cullen, Storm Purvis and Phoenix Kataka. How much of a loss are they heading into this quad series? You know, any player is a huge loss. Kayla's probably a, a big one as she's uh, always kind of been there and she's that wing defence spot. And that's the spot we're trying to cover at the moment and seeing who's going to come up and step up into that role. You mentioned there the wing defence spot and obviously while Kayla was out during the Constellation Cup last year, Laura Langman stepped into that place. Of course, this is the first series since 2005. You guys have been without her in the midcourt there. How much work have you guys done in, I guess, trying to build in that midcourt and also with, I guess, the experience you're losing with her? We knew we were going to lose laws coming into the series. We've known since around Constellation Cup last year. So um, that's hence why, you know, Sam's coming through. She's in the midcourter who her game is quite similar to Laura's. You know, Laura, you can never replace a Laura Langman. No way, no how, you know. It's, um, she's got so much experience and such a, a legend of our game, but... You know, these young ones, it's time for them to come and, and step up and, and see how, how they like test netball. But no doubt Laura's a huge loss on and off the court. But, um, yeah, this is the time for us to try new things. This quad series, you are the visitors and that South Africa and England are probably more likely to put up more of a fight on their own home turf. Are you expecting mm. more of a challenge from those teams as well? Of course. You always expect a, a bigger challenge from any team playing on their home turf. It's like us when we play at home. We definitely expect to win those games and want to win those games as much as possible, even though we do like to win away from home. But at home, you know, it's your soil and you need to protect that. Katrina Grant speaking to Denise Garland. The former head of the World Anti-Doping Agency, David Hellman, says it'd be wrong to tarnish the reputation of champion sprinter Usain Bolt in the wake of a positive drugs test by relay teammate Nesta Carter. Bolt and Carter were part of the Jamaican quartet that won the 4x100 relay at the Beijing Olympics, but have now been ordered to hand back their gold medals in the wake of Carter's 2008 sample testing positive for a banned substance upon retesting. Hellman says Bolt has been subject to a lot of impromptu and out-of-competition testing and is now Olympic medal hall of eight gold medals shouldn't be looked at any differently. Not in my view. I mean, I, th- I think you've got to be pretty pretty careful here. Usain Bolt is one of those athletes who has obviously been in the limelight for a long time and been tested many, many times, uh, including um, a lot of no-notice testing uh, out of competition and so forth. I don't think that someone like him should be put into the a position of being said, no, no, you're subject to being guilty by association. I think that would be a wrong step. Any case you think the other three runners in that 4x100 relay team might have in being able to keep their medals? No, this is a subject that has been litigated quite a few times uh, with relay teams over the years. There's been a number where they have asked them all to return. I think there may have been one when they've said, no, they didn't have to, but the IAAF have revised their rules. And my understanding is that the rule is pretty plain and it says uh, once you lose the gold medal, all people who are in that team must, uh, must forfeit them. What about the Jamaican testing process? Because there have been issues, haven't there, with Jamaican athletics and positive tests from from other Jamaican sprinters? Yes, there has. I mean, the the Jamaican National Anti-Doping Agency stuttered a wee bit at the start. It it wasn't in place, what might have just been in place around Beijing, but certainly we went down there uh, to Jamaica quite a few times after Beijing and encouraged them, the Prime Minister and and the Minister in charge of sport, to set up a a national agency, and they did that. It worked pretty well, but came to a bit of a halt before London when the CEO was fired. And 
nothing happened down there for six months or so. It led to sort of all rumours saying that well, the Jamaicans weren't being tested and so on. That's been remedied, and there's a new CEO in charge. They're doing a pretty good job down there under the monitoring of the Canadian body, and, and certainly WADA is looking at them. So I don't think there's anything that is wrong in Jamaica now, nor can we look back and say there was something that was wrong that has led to Jamaicans not being tested properly. In fact, as you just said, there have been quite a few found positive down there. Is there any implication or fallout that that 2008 positive test would have for the relay team, given they then went on a one in, in 2012 in London? If the athlete who was found positive was in the London team, um, then, of course, uh, one would expect the IOC to retest his sample from London uh, as a matter of course. And um, I would say that that will either have been done already or will be done pretty shortly. I suppose the issue you've got is if you've tested positive, presumably you'd have then been subject to some kind of suspension and therefore that may have impacted your ability to take part in, in the Games four years later. Yeah, that's true. But I, I think if you if you look at the rule that was in, in force in 2008, it would have been unlikely for that athlete to have been banned for four years. That would, that would have to have resulted from a second sanction uh, at the time. Whereas if he had been found positive after the uh, 2013 amendments to the code, which came into effect on the 1st of January 2015, then he would have been subject to a four-year ban, and that might have been a different outcome. So no, I don't think it would have meant that he would be uh, ineligible, if you like, to have run in London. That's a former WADA boss, David Howman, speaking to sports editor Stephen Hewson. After four decades of being in charge of one of the world's richest sports, Bernie Eccleston has been removed as the boss of Formula One. Eccleston, who's 86, has been forced out by the new owners, American company Liberty Media. The American businessman Chase Carey, the current vice president of 21st Century Fox, has been chosen to replace him. Murray Walker has been commenting on Formula One since the 1940s. He told Guy and Espiner that change was inevitable. Bernie, after all, is 86 years old, and although he's still hale and hearty and very much in control of things, he's not going to be for much longer, either because he fades away or because he disappears altogether. So the inevitable has happened a bit quicker than it might have done. I've got very mixed feelings about the fact that he's going. I've got an enormous respect and admiration for him because he's the man who's made Formula One what it is, like it or loathe it. But for him, it would have continued, I suppose, to be a sport for wealthy amateurs. He's made it a global sport with a gigantic following of enthusiasts all over the world. But Liberty coming in is accompanied by all the right sort of noises. First of all, there is undoubtedly a need to better distribute the vast amount of money that Formula One generates between the teams so that the lesser teams get more and the bigger teams get less. Uh, There is undoubtedly a need to have more races in America to make Formula One a true world championship. And there's also a need to promote it better than it has been promoted and I think Liberty will do all these things where Bernie didn't. He's run it almost single-handedly for 40 years. You must have a pretty good sense of the man. How has he been able to do that? He's been able to do it by force of personality and by the fact that he was willing and able to take on responsibility for the whole shooting match 
Whereas in the past, it was virtually impossible to get a decision on anything because all the teams thought about was their own problems and their own potential benefits or disadvantages. Bernie had the wit and the wisdom to see that if somebody pulled the whole lot together, the television rights and other money-making things could be run by one man, and that's what he did. And he's fought an enormous number of battles on the way. Yeah, he's done some things wrong, but we do, all of us do some (laughs) things wrong. The sport is incomparably safer now. So it's a safer sport, it's a wealthier sport, it's a further-reaching sport, and it's all down to Bernie, no doubt about it, because there is no aspect of Formula One that Bernie Ecclestone hasn't got a finger in and control of. And he didn't always make friends in the process, did he? Scandal never seemed to be too far away. He reportedly once praised Hitler as someone who was able to get things done. He seemed to involve himself in controversy pretty much wherever he went. Was that, again, just part of the, the personality? Somebody in Bernie's position is bound to create dissension because he's what Formula One needs, and that's a benevolent dictator As I said, it's better to have one man making the decision than a lot of men not making the decision. And if you're that one man, you're bound to make decisions that are going to offend some people. And Bernie's done it, but by and large, he's he's won virtually every time. And by and large, the sport is infinitely better for his running it, in my opinion. The motorsport commentator Murray Walker speaking with Guy and Espiner. And you're listening to Extra Time. One half of one of New Zealand's most successful sailing duos, Polly Powery, announced her retirement from the international stage this month. Powery, along with her 470 sailing partner, Joe Allais, won gold at the 2012 London Olympics and backed that up with a silver medal at last year's Rio Games. They're also former world champions and in 2013 were named ISAF Female World Sailors of the Year. While Alay is taking one year off the 470 class to sail on bigger boats in the Volvo Ocean Race, Powery told Denise Garland she knew she didn't have it in her to commit to another four-year cycle. Joe and myself had a successful eight years together. Um, we really enjoyed each other's company over that time. But, you know, I felt like I sort of achieved as much as I could. And uh, I guess, you know, Olympic campaigning, um, as any sort of athlete would know, is that, you know, you, you need a lot of sort of drive and, and desire. And um, I just didn't feel like I could do that justice for another four years. Your sailing partner, Joe, has obviously chosen to take this year off the 470 boat as well. And did that factor into your decision-making at all about uh, sort of when, when to call it quits? Uh, yes and no. Um, Joe and myself have been talking back and forth over the last uh, few months and um, bouncing ideas off each other. But, you know, individually we sort of had to make a call of what was best for each of us. And, you know, for Joe, um, it's sort of looking like big boats and things and she, yeah, she might step back into the Olympic arena. But, uh, yeah, for myself, you know, I just I just couldn't commit to um, another four years and sort of feel like I was uh, giving it all I had. What did uh, Jo say when you told her of your decision? She was really supportive. You know, as, as I said, we've been uh, talking back and forth. So, uh, yeah, you know, she understands uh, the demands it takes to achieve it in high-performance sport. So, no, she, she's really supportive. And you guys are obviously coming off quite a successful Olympic campaign where you won silver at Rio. Did you both sort of want to end things on a high as well? Did, did that kind of factor into it? 
Uh, yeah, we're we're really uh, proud of the medal that we won in Rio. Um, I think uh, you know Joe and myself had always sort of worked in four-year cycles towards the the goal of the Olympics, and uh, you know that didn't really factor in the decision. Um, you know, we kind of uh, work towards that and then reassess um, afterwards. And so it's just sort of been, I've just sort of been mulling it over um, the last few months since the Olympics. As you mentioned, you have spent eight years uh, with Joe as Team Jolly. What have been your highlights? Certainly, you know, the, the gold in London and the silver in Rio. Um, we're both uh, very proud of those uh, results. But also, you know, we had uh, challenges as a team and, and individually, and we managed to uh, work through those and become quite a tight unit by the end of the eight years, along with our coach, Nathan Hanley, who's been been a great support for us. So, um, you know, we sort of had those uh, personal milestones along the way that um, gave a lot of satisfaction. What is next for you? Yeah, at the moment I'm um, in full-time work. Over the uh, course of 10 years, I've sort of been chipping away at a uh, business degree um, alongside the Olympic circuit. So, uh, yeah, at the moment I'm sort of putting that side of things to use. And um, in terms of sailing, do you think you'll remain in the sort of uh, sailing yachting fold? Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, my whole family sails, so uh, it's pretty hard to, to get away from it. But I still enjoy uh, sailing recreationally um, you know, and, and competitively as a weekend, uh, weekend warrior or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what the future holds, but I'll definitely be involved in sailing in some way. Retired Olympic sailor Polly Powery speaking to Denise Garland. New Zealand Super Rugby teams are gearing up for the 2017 competition, which begins in just under a month when the Rebels take on the Blues in Melbourne. The defending champion Hurricanes will kick off their season with their first meeting against the Sunwolves in Tokyo. The Hurricanes captain and All Blacks hooker Dane Coles looked back at their successful 2016 season with Joe Porter and also spoke about his expectations for 2017. It's been a hell of a year and I think the Wellingtonian of the year is probably uh, for all the hard work with the Hurricanes that I'm probably just getting all the accolades for it. But, uh, you know, it's always nice to be uh, recognised like that and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm proud Wellingtonian, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, pretty special. You were described by coach John Plumtree as a reluctant captain. Uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah, he's probably summed me up uh, pretty well there. Uh, you know, I did things kind of my own way, and um, that was the kind of style I wanted to, you know, to show the boys. And I think you know, the biggest thing you can do to a team is just to play well, and that's, what, that's the biggest thing I tried just to leave with my actions. And uh, but it was a really good experience for me, and you know, something I I really enjoyed. The situation in Durban, we had to give a few of the players a wrap over the knuckles. How hard was it to, I guess, square up to senior All Blacks and senior Hurricanes such as Julian and Corey and, and draw a line in the sand in that sense? Yeah, it was hard, mate, because I've never had to be to do anything like that. And those guys are pretty close to me, like good mates of mine. But, uh, you know, I, I think if I didn't do it, then, or, you know, little things like that would probably, you know, filter in throughout the year or in, in the future. And, yeah, I think it sends a probably good tone for the younger guys to, you know, you know, no one's bigger than a team, no matter if you're an all-black or you've been here for one game or 50 games. So it was real hard, mate. I had to, like, you lay down the law. But, mate, they, they accepted it, took it on the chin. And I think, um, you know, and like I said, it sent a good message to the team. Like, you put the team first and no matter who you are, you know, I don't care, or the, the leadership group don't care. You know, you, you've got to, you know, follow the rules and... Because I've just been in that team too many times, and I've seen things that happen, and, and that does have effect on things, and you know, further down the road. And but yeah, that's the part of being a captain, mate. That's not all good. You know, you got to, you got to 
do the bad stuff as well. So, yeah, something um, yeah, I had to do, and yeah, this is the way it is. And turning to the All Blacks, obviously another very successful year, filling the holes of all the departed veterans from the World Cup, setting the record for 18 consecutive tests unbeaten, and winning all but one test this year. I mean, what was that loss like to the Irish? How did that feel? Yeah, it was pretty tough. To be honest. It's going to be probably I'll be thinking about it for the rest of my life. I think we're the first All Black side to lose, but uh, yeah, they we were just bitten off the mark. And I think um, looking back, you know, there was obviously a bit going on in Chicago, and you know they had a lot of emotion with uh, you know the months of number eight passing away, and he was I think he meant a lot to that team. So yeah, and you know we gave ourselves a chance, but yeah, we we just. Unfortunately, we left it too late, and you got to give full credit to the Irish. They, you know, they came out from you know a huge intensity and really gave it to us. And you know, we, we didn't we didn't deserve to win that match. And uh, but yeah, it does hurt, mate. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough one to swallow, but that's footy. You know, you know those things are going to happen. Next year, the British and Irish Lions. Obviously, Coach Steve Hansen's very keen on getting you guys super prepared for it. What are you expecting from them? It seems like the gap between the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere teams have closed this year. Yeah, I reckon they're hugely like obviously with the victories. Ireland had a you know great year. England are on fire, and you know Wales and Scotland and that are not, not too far behind. So, you know they're going to be whatever team comes out, they're going to be bloody strong, and it's you know. For them, it's going to be one of the toughest places to play rugby. You know, all those super, you know, super games, they'll be they'll be pretty tough. But I think it's exciting. You know, if I get the chance to be a part of. I remember being in Wellington when the you know, the last time the British and Iron Lions were here, and it was just a, you know, just a, the atmosphere was unreal. So uh, yeah, it'd be something um, you know I'll be working hard to, to to be a part of if I get the chance. Do you have aspirations to be the All Black captain one day? Uh, nah, mate. Oh. I never said. I said that about the Hurricanes, but uh, yeah, we've got pretty good quality men. Like Rito and Sammy Kane's great leader, and yeah, if it did come, you know, it does. But I'm happy where I am. You know, just leading, with the, being in the leadership group and stuff like that, um, and backing, you know, Rito and Sammy up and, and Ben Smith. So yeah, you never say never, but uh, you know, it'd be a huge honour if I ever get the chance to lead the All Blacks. Dane Cole speaking with Joe Porter. The former Warriors captain Ruben Wickey will don the jersey once more for the Auckland-based Rugby League Club in this year's NRL Nines event on Waitangi weekend. The 44-year-old, who is now the Warriors' strength and conditioning coach, is coming out of retirement temporarily eight years after ending his playing career. Matt Chatterton finds out why he's lacing up the boots one more time. With more than 300 National Rugby League games to his name, anyone could forgive Ruben Wickey for turning down the opportunity to play one more time at the ripe old age of 44, especially given the fast-paced nature of the Nines competition. He may not be the same barnstorming enforcer he was during his playing days with the Warriors and the Canberra Raiders, but Wickey's fitness is as good as ever. In fact, he revealed he's not just the Warriors' strength and conditioning coach. When they're short of numbers at training, I kind of jump in, so I do get to um, rub shoulders with the boys, and I think um, when the opportunity arose, you know, I actually had to do some specific training, so um, with the contact and that, so next week would be pretty exciting. I just got to find my arm guards again, I've displaced them. But before Wiki agreed to don the jersey once more, he had to run it by a few people close to him. I had to ask three people that are most important in my life, you know, the wife, and my son and my daughter. Um, my wife and son were a bit um, diplomatic. My daughter just said YOLO, so I just went with that. Wiki's experience could come in handy for the Warriors. The hometown favourites have been unable to win the Nines title in the three years it's been running, 
though they came close last year finishing runner-up. While he may be tempted, Wiki says he won't be barking out orders. Instead, he'll leave that up to the likes of playmaker Sean Johnson. It seems Wiki's more worried about keeping his emotions in check when taking to the field after so long. Like any new challenge, you know, you got to you get nervous and excited at the same time. So uh, I think it's a whole, the whole concept of the nines of the last few years has just been uh, very, very bright, and I think uh, everyone's embraced it all. And I think um, watching from the outside, you know, you always want to just be a part of it. And I think uh, now we get that opportunity at that tender age. I'm looking forward to it. The two-day competition gets underway on Saturday, the 4th of February. For extra time, Matt Chatterton. The New Zealand blind cricket team are getting ready to travel to India to compete at the second-ever T20 Blind Cricket World Cup. The blind caps, as they're known, have not competed at any World Cup since 2006 when they played in the 40-overs version of the competition. Ten teams, all made up of both completely blind and partially blind players, will travel around India's major cities playing a slightly altered version of traditional cricket, which includes smaller boundaries, a plastic ball with ball bearings and underarm bowling. The Blind Caps captain, James Dunn, who's been part of the team since 1998, told Denise Garland there's a good mix of experience and youth in the New Zealand side. Um, going from uh, 15 to uh, mid-50s, and one of the guys in, the fifth, in his 50s is um, coming back from about 10 years ago, so yeah, he's really keen to get stuck in again, and uh, he's also one of the fittest too, so everybody's sort of keep, got to keep up to the standard. So you're obviously heading to India. What sort of challenges does the country itself pose for the team? Obviously, blind people have more heightened senses than sighted people, and India is sort of known as a very noisy and crowded city. Yeah, no, very true. Um, I think the players will get a bit of a shock uh, travelling into the hotel with all the noises and the beeps of the horns and just uh, the feeling, the smells, really just sort of safety with hygiene, uh, just sort of the usual checking the seals on the bottles and uh, looking out for one each another. And other than that, it's just sort of stick together as a group and um, have a look around and enjoy the country and yeah, play a bit of cricket too. Now, in terms of uh, the World Cup, obviously it's the first time in a, a wee while, more than a decade, that New Zealand has competed at a, a World Cup, I understand. What do you understand about uh, the teams to beat and who to look out for? Yeah, this is a, yeah, the second T20, so um, the last one we played was in Pakistan, which was 40 over, but we've played a few internationals between, but... Yeah, the top teams are usually India and Pakistan with uh, England too. Sort of the kind of like sided cricket too. The sort of the, the usually the top teams. So we're banking on aiming for some of the other teams. And yeah, you just never know if cricket on the day we could clean sweep one of the better teams and uh, put a bit of a shot to the blind cricket world. With India and sighted cricket, we often discuss the conditions of the grounds, the pitches, obviously the heat that the players have to deal with. Is it similar in blind cricket? Yeah, no, definitely. If um, With our uh, plastic ball with um, ball bearings, if it's like a real real dry, which I'm, we're expecting over there, a lot of dust and um, it just flies off the bat in the outfield if it, it's going to be cut short. So... Just a little touch of the ball with the pace of the bowlers. It can easily go for four, which our boundaries are usually up to about 50 metres. 
teams are made up of both completely blind and partially blind players. How is all of that tested and how does that work as to, um, uh, I guess, ensuring that players who aren't sighted or um, well-sighted, partially well-sighted, um, are part of the team? Yeah, that's that's been an ongoing thing for um, quite a while now because you all get tested in your own country and then your own ophthalmologist or optometrist. The WBCC, World Blind Cricket, they've been looking into maybe getting a certain ophthalmologist throughout each country to test. So there is a bit of feeling about people that you may not think are blind, but you've just got to play the team that's on the field. And the B1, which is totally blind now, there's a new rule in that they wear blacked out glasses. So that's a, a newish rule which um, has come into effect and everybody's got along, got along with that, so that's going pretty well. Blind Caps captain James Dunn speaking with Denise Garland. And that's extra time for this weekend. You can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.